Good morning, church. Today's um, scripture reading is from 2 Samuel 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof of the woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Vashba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house. There followed him a present from the king. But, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I go down to my house to eat and to drink and to lie down with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank. So, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie in his couch with his servants of his Lord, with the servants of his Lord. But he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joah was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then, Jacob, then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubishath? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died at the best? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men... The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field. But he drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shoot. The archers shot at your servant from the wall. 
Some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is also. David said to the messenger, The shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now other, another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. So when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And, then and, then, and when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David done displeased the Lord. To Samuel 12, 1 to 14. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but a poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him, with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserved to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? to do what is evil in his sight. You struck down Uriah, the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes. And he shall lie with your neighbors. Sorry. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the children is born to you shall die. Thank you, M.M. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. So these past few weeks, we've been looking at relationships, and we've been doing it through the lens of the relationships of King David and his life in the Bible. And we've looked at his interaction with people in authority over him, his interaction with friends, his interaction with spouses, his interaction with enemies. And each step of the way, we've been trying to see what can we learn from David's example, the things he does well, the things he does poorly, that we can apply in our lives today. And in the relationships we have looked at so far, David 
has made a few mistakes here and there, but overall he has been like a bright, shining example of the proper way to approach all sorts of different types of relationships. But today, we're gonna see a different side of David. We're gonna see that he, even though he's a man after God's own heart, he is capable of actions that are harmful, that are selfish, that are just purely evil. But even in his failures and his mistakes, there's a lot for us to learn from him. So today we're looking at David and the scene with Bathsheba and Uriah. And what we're gonna see is that sin leads to death. Sin leads to death, very short, simple. We'll look at the walk, the unraveling, the confrontation and our relationships. But first let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that you have spoken to us, that you've given us the opportunity to know you through your word. We pray today that as we look at King David and this scene from his life, that you would be speaking to us, that you'd be showing us how you want us to live and that you'd be equipping us to live in a way that honors you and that loves others. And in Jesus' name, amen. So first we have the walk. The, the passage opens by saying that it was the time of year when the kings go out to battle. But in this particular year, something surprising happens. King David, his whole army goes out to fight a war, but the king, David himself, isn't with them. It's the time of year the kings go out to battle, but the king isn't out at battle. We don't know why he didn't go. There probably was a good reason for it. We don't know what it was. On its own, staying in Jerusalem isn't necessarily a bad thing. Maybe he had important kingly duties to attend to back home. But then we see next some more of his actions that paint him staying back in a much more negative light. Verse two says that in the late afternoon, it's more like the early evening, David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of his palace. It seems like what's happening here is back in that time in that part of the world, it was common for people to take a little siesta, a mid-afternoon nap for an hour or two in the afternoon during the hottest part of the day. And then you'd wake up refreshed and go back to work. And David on this particular day laid down and instead of sleeping for an hour or two, slept for five or six hours. And instead of waking up refreshed, ready to get back to work, he woke up ready to relax a little bit more. And so rather than waking up and getting to work, he walks up and takes, or he wakes up and takes a walk on the roof of his palace and just surveys the land and all the area that he rules over. And isn't it wonderful? how much power I have, how great things are going for me. And so between him staying home from the battle and him just spending this whole day relaxing, it appears that he is failing to fulfill his responsibilities as a king. And as he is ignoring his responsibilities, he's failing to act as king, he's relaxing on the roof, he looks out and he sees a woman taking a bath. Now, remember, they had no running water, so taking baths outside was probably a common thing. She was probably in her yard, a place where she could typically expect privacy, but he's the king. He's, his palace is on top of the hill, and he has a high rooftop, so he can see into places that normal people couldn't see. And so he sees her, and he notices two things about her. She is a woman, and she is beautiful and he is drawn in by her beauty. And we'll see in just a minute what he does with that attraction. But first, I want us to notice something about the circumstances that David's in right here. It seems from looking at the passage that there's a feeling of emptiness inside David that he's trying to fill. He's lacking direction, he's lacking motivation. He, he doesn't have any desire to be productive or to properly fulfill his role as king. And so when he sees this woman's physical beauty, he's drawn to her as the object that can fill that void inside of him. And our world today, I think, isn't that different than David. We have so many people in our world who just feel like there's something inside them that's empty, that needs to be filled. And like David, for many people in our world, this longing can have a strong connection to not living out the calling that God has placed on our lives. You know, I don't think any of us are kings or queens, but all of us have a calling that God has placed on our lives for us to fulfill. That might be as a, a pilot or a banker or a lawyer or a teacher or 
a mother or father or husband and wife or student or something else or some combination of these things. But all of us have a calling that God has given us that we're supposed to pursue and seek to do well. And obviously we balance that with rest, but overall we're, we're aiming to seek to honor God in fulfilling that calling. And when we ignore that calling that God has given us, when we don't seek to do that faithfully, it leaves us with this emptiness inside us. And we turn to something that we think can fill it. And this desire to fill the emptiness, it can lead many, many different directions. But one common direction that it leads in our world is the same direction that it led David. This desire for physical beauty, for physical attraction and stimulation. Only the difference is our world doesn't need a palace rooftop to peek over the neighbor's fence to see someone taking a bath. Because we have these things called iPhones in our pockets and computers in our homes. And all it takes is a quick search and you can have whatever images you want directly in front of you, right? Like, I don't know if you realize this, the pornography industry in our world is huge. Worldwide, it generates 97 billion, that's billion with a B, US dollars in revenue every year. For perspective, do we have any like Premier League fans here? No, no one, one, two. Any like Man U fans? Any Liverpool fans? Man City, yeah. We know the, the Premier League is huge, right? It has fans worldwide. Do you know how much money this year the Premier League is generating in revenue? 7.1 billion US dollars which means that you need 13 and a half years of Premier League revenue to match one year of pornography revenue. The pornography industry in our world is a huge worldwide industry. And statistics say that in a group this size, several people use it regularly. And that's from across demographic groups, teens and adults, men and women, married and single. No one type of person is immune to its pull. And just as David probably started off thinking, it's, it's harmless for me to just look at my neighbor's wife and see and just enjoy how pretty she is. Many people in our world feel the same way about porn. But just as we're going to see David, his action, his viewing of Bathsheba had consequences in the real world, so does porn. It rewires your brain. It trains you to look at other people as objects for your sexual fulfillment rather than people to love. That has real world consequences for the relationships that we enter into each day. It also desensitizes you. Did you know that people who regularly watch porn are three times more likely to cheat on their spouses? Because porn takes actions that at one point in life would have shocked you, things like cheating on a spouse, and it makes them seem ordinary and everyday, and it shows it to you in explicit detail over and over, and after dozens or hundreds of times viewing it, it, it doesn't seem so bad to try it yourself, and it tears relationships apart. And then on top of that, it's one of, if not the leading cause of human trafficking in the world, right? The people that you're watching online are real people. Many of them are doing this because they're in a situation in life where they feel trapped. They feel like they have no other choice than to do what they're doing on the screen. Just like Bathsheba, when she arrives in David's palace, probably feels like she has no choice but to go along with what David wants her to do. And as we'll see in a minute with David, porn has real world consequences that affect real world people. Did you notice when David first asks, who is this? They say, this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah. She's not just introduced as an individual person, isolated, separated from any type of other people. She's introduced in relation to her father and her husband, which is rare in the Bible. Usually you'd be introduced by one or the other, but not both. But there's something being pointed out to us here that she, is, she exists in a network of relationships. The things that happen to her impact the people around her, like her father and her husband. She's a person. The things that happen to her impact them. And again, in our world, the people starring in pornography videos, they are real people with parents and kids and friends and maybe even spouses. 
the things being done to them impact the network of relationships in their lives. And the ways that you, you know, we talked about how when you watch porn, you treat people differently because it rewires your brain. When you treat people differently, it's not just that one person, it's their network of relationships that gets impacted. Pornography is dangerous. It has real world consequences. And just like with David, the first step towards it, it's often an unwillingness to fulfill the calling that God has given us in life faithfully. If you're here today and you're struggling with porn, I want to encourage you, find someone that you can talk to about it, who can walk alongside you, who can hold you accountable, who can help you fight against it. But also remember, for David and for you, the root of the problem isn't porn itself. The root of the problem is that there's a disconnect from God. Just like David, it was keeping him from properly living out God's calling on his life. And so don't just focus on the symptoms of pornography if this is you, but get to the root of the problem. But David didn't. And because of that, things began to unravel for him. So let's look at the unraveling. See, David, he sees this woman, Bathsheba, taking a bath. He sees that she is beautiful. And in and of itself, there's nothing that he has done wrong by seeing her at this point. You can't always control what's put in front of you, but what he can control is how he responds to it, what he does next. He could have looked away. He could have gone to the other side of the roof. He could have used it as a wake-up call to be like, oh yeah, God wants me to be leading this nation and I'm ignoring my responsibility. I better get back to work but he doesn't do any of those things. And why not? Because he's enchanted by her beauty. Like a character in a fairy tale who's trapped by a witch's spell, David just can't turn away. As far as he's concerned, his life has been missing something and he's finally found it. And just to be clear, the thing that he is missing in life from his perspective and his understanding, it's not just sex. David has a collection of wives and concubines. He has a harem full of them. If he wants sex, he can get it very quickly and easily. And it's not even sex with someone new or different. He's the king. He can find any woman in the kingdom who's not married to come join him and have an experience of someone new, someone different, any different personality type or whatever, whatever he's interested in, he can find it in his kingdom and have access to that. But what his heart wants in that moment, it's not just sex, it's not just sex with someone new, it is her. He wants to possess her. He wants to almost own her and nothing besides her will satisfy him. And so he starts taking steps to get closer to her. And I don't know if you noticed this while we were reading it, but almost everything that happens in this story happens by means of messengers and middlemen. So it's not just that David himself is doing something wrong, but he's dragging in his subordinates and making them accomplices. He's using his power, abusing his power over them to get them to do things that they know are wrong, which is something important for us to remember too. When we do things that are wrong, the list of victims often reaches much further than we would have anticipated at the start. David drags in his subordinates and, and forces them to go along with what he's doing and do things they know are wrong. He learns who this woman is, and then it says that he sent messengers and he took her. Think about that word, took. He doesn't invite her. He takes her. He essentially steals her. We don't know how Bathsheba felt about this. Uh, we don't know whether she tries to fight it. We don't know whether she was like, it's nice to have a man's attention while my husband's away. We have no idea. But if the Me Too movement has taught us anything, it's that if a man with that much power tries to pursue a woman under his authority, the woman often feels powerless to say no, even if she wants to. And so Bathsheba is taken to David's house. David takes his neighbor's wife, maybe with her approval, maybe not. He sleeps with her, he sends her home. And as far as David is concerned, this is a one night stand, it's done. Now that the night is done, there's no need for any type of further interaction with this woman. We can just move on with life and pretend it never happened. But there's a problem. She's pregnant. 
And the bath that she was taking was a ceremonial bath that Jewish women took to mark the end of her previous period. So they know the baby can only be from one man, the king, not her husband. And in that culture, if they were caught having a baby together while she was married to another man, it would be the death sentence for David and for Bathsheba. They would both be killed. And so David realizes, I don't want to die. I better cover this up. So he brings back her husband from the war. Her husband, by the way, is one of the most elite soldiers in her army, in his army, one of the 30 greatest soldiers in the army. He brings him away from the war and he just asks how the war's going. And there's this big scene where David is essentially trying to get this man to go home and sleep with his wife so he can cover it up, make it look like the baby is his. And this guy refuses to do it. He cares too much about God to to dishonor God by doing that. He cares too much about his nation and his fellow soldiers to go spend the night at home with his wife while they're all away from their families at war. And there's an irony here. Did you notice over and over when they talked about this man, Uriah, it refers to him as Uriah the Hittite. It might not seem significant, but actually the Hittites were one of the nations that lived in the land that became Israel before the Israelites came in. And over and over in the Bible, you see God saying, the people in this land are evil. They need to be wiped out so that you don't get drawn into their evil ways. The Hittites were one of those evil, evil people. And yet here is Uriah the Hittite, this foreigner, who's like the greatest guy in the nation, the most upright guy, won't do anything wrong. He's even better than the man after God's own heart, God's chosen king from his chosen people. And so David eventually realizes, you know, I've gotten this guy drunk. He still won't go home to his wife. Like there's nothing that I can do that will turn him away from the the path of doing the right thing that he is on. So David goes to plan B. He writes a letter giving Uriah's death sentence and has Uriah himself carry it back to the battlefield because you know, he's such an upright guy. He's not gonna peek in and see what the king is saying in the letter. And so Uriah himself carries this letter back to the leader of the army, gives it to him. And when the leader of the army, a guy named Joab opens it up, it has a plan for how to kill Uriah. Put him in the most intense part of the fighting, pull everyone else back, let them kill him. And now another person is dragged into David's scheme. Joab is now his executioner against this totally innocent man. But there's a problem. David's plan is sloppy. David's gotten so desperate to get rid of this guy and cover up what he's done that that he's not thinking like a military commander anymore. And Joab realizes this. If if you do what David says and pull everyone else back, it's going to be pretty obvious that someone wants Uriah dead and people might start asking questions and that's going to be messy. So Joab changes the plan. He does something else that will get Uriah killed without being so obvious, but there's some collateral damage. Some other men get killed in the process. And all of a sudden we see David's sin, his, his bad decisions with Bathsheba. It's spreading poison in not just his relationships, but it's spreading physical death among the subjects that he's supposed to protect as the king. Sin's impact, when we disobey God, the impact is bigger than we ever expect it to be. And with David, it just keeps spreading. It keeps spreading. But we finally reach the point where Uriah is dead His wife mourns for him. And then David invites her to become his wife. She moves to the palace. She gets in there soon enough that they can pass it off as just like a honeymoon baby. And as far as David is concerned, everything is covered up. The ex-husband is dead. He can't take revenge against David. No one knows what's happened except for, you know, a few servants around the palace, but surely they won't say anything. We're done but there's one character in the story who's been conspicuously absent the entire time so far. And he's introduced in that last verse of chapter 11. And that character is God. It says right there at the end of chapter 11, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. He's not happy. 
which leads to the confrontation. See, God, because he is displeased with David, he sends a prophet, a guy named Nathan, to confront David. And before we look at this confrontation, I have a question for you. Do you think God would have been more loving to confront David like he does or to let David get away with it? Just keep it hidden for the rest of his life. Who thinks the loving thing is to confront him? Who thinks the loving thing is to just let him get away with it and not have to worry about it? You know, biblically, God confronting David is the loving thing to do. But I got to tell you, this is true for me. I'm guessing this is true for all of us. When you're in the middle of a situation like David, where you're doing something wrong and you're trying to keep it hidden, it never feels like God confronting you and letting you get caught is the loving thing. Right? Am I right about that? It always feels like if God really loved me, he would let me keep this hidden. He would let me get away with it. He would let no one else find out. And I could just carry this secret to my grave and we'd be all set. But actually, biblically, we see if you go to the New Testament in Romans chapter one, when God is really upset with us, that's actually when he's just like, forget it. I'm going to let them do their own thing. I'm going to let them do what they want. I'm not going to stop them. I'm not going to get in the way. That's what God does when he's really, really, really upset. As terrible as catching David and, and letting him face these consequences, as terrible as that seems, it's actually an act of love on God's part. Because it gives David to get the chance to get back on the path of right relationships in his life. Without God intervening in this way, David would have continued down this path of abusing power, hurting those around him, making a mess of his life, and no one would have stopped him. And so if you're here today and you have some secret in your life that you're trying to hide because you know it will have consequences, whether that's pornography or an affair or some type of addiction or something else, you might be thinking right now, the worst thing that can happen to me is for the secret to get out. But that's a lie. If the secret gets out, yes, there will be consequences. It will be really hard for a while, but it also gives you a chance to get on the path of healing and reconciliation. If that's you, maybe, maybe God's inviting you today to be the one who shares the secret. I know that's a terrifying idea, but it's far better than being found out by someone else later. And despite what you might be thinking, the worst thing that can happen to you is not the secret getting out. The worst thing that can happen to you is that the secret never gets out because then it will keep controlling you until the day you die. But God, he confronts our sin. He stops us in our path of pursuing it, not because he hates us, but because he loves us. And that's what we see happening in this scene where Nathan comes to David. And one other comment before we dive into that conversation, we live in a broken world. And because of that, the fact that we live in a broken world, we're not only people who cause problems, but we're also people who are victims of sin. And I'm sure in a group this size, we probably have several people who are victims of some type of sexual sin or have been at some point in your life, whether that's infidelity, whether that's some type of abuse or attack against you. If you are a victim of sexual sin, there's something really, really, really important that you need to see right here in this passage. And it's this, God sees what has happened to you. God cares about what has happened to you and God will bring justice for what has happened to you. God sees what has happened to you. He cares about what has happened to you and he will bring justice for what has happened to you. What has happened to you, it does not mean that God has forgotten about you. It does not mean that God is ignoring you. God loves you. He cares about you. And over and over in the Bible, we see him fight on behalf of those who are victims, who have been hurt and wronged. So you can trust him. And if you need someone to talk to about what's been going on, please come find me or one of the other elders after service. We would love to talk to you.
Back to the story, Nathan, he confronts David and he does it by telling the story. There's two men, one rich man, one poor man. The rich man, he's extremely wealthy. He has flocks and flocks of sheep and goats. The poor man has only one little lamb and he loves it like a daughter. One day a visitor comes to the rich man. It's expected that he would feed this man and be a great host. And rather than taking one of his thousands of sheep, he goes to the poor man he takes his precious little lamb, he slaughters it, cooks it, and feeds it to his guest. Now, how do you guys feel about the rich man? Anyone feel like he's kind of the scum of the earth? Anyone think that he deserves some sort of consequences for his actions? Is everyone asleep this morning? Like, this guy's a bad guy, right? Like, you don't want to be in his circle of influence. He's a horrible person. And David thinks so too. He is outraged by this story. He says, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he has done this thing and because he has had no pity. David is furious about what has happened. He is out for blood. And it's only at this moment that Nathan drops the bomb. You are the man. And then he outlines for David how horrible his actions have been and the consequences that are going to come to him because of it. And in Nathan's speech, there's a truth that rises to the surface. It's true for David. It's true for us. And here's the reality. David only treated others wrong because there was first a problem in his relationship with God. The only reason David treated Bathsheba and Uriah and all his servants wrong is because there was a problem on a deeper level in his relationship with God. Yes, the things he did against Bathsheba, Uriah, Joab, his various servants, they were very, very wrong. He left families without husbands and fathers. He abused his power and hurt the people that he was supposed to protect. But Nathan makes it clear David only did those things because in Nathan's words, he despised the word of the Lord. There was a problem in his relationship with God that led him to mistreat the people around him. And this is something we need to recognize as we think about our relationships in the world today. At the core of all our relationship problems in life are actually God problems. We only treat other people in ways that are wrong because there's something wrong in our relationship with God first. And if we don't deal with those underlying God problems, any work we do on the human relationships, it's not gonna be lasting. It's not gonna have a long-term impact. If you're here today and, and you're not a Christian, I don't want you to walk out thinking like, hey, as long as I don't murder my neighbor and steal their spouse, like I'm doing better than this guy, right? I'm okay. Like, no. What this passage is saying is that until our relationship with God is right, it's going to impact every single human relationship we have in ways that are big and small. You can think of it kind of like we're trees and our relationships with other people are the fruit that grow off the tree. But our relationship with God is the root system of our tree. If your tree has a rotting root system, no amount of work on the exterior of the tree is gonna make healthy fruit grow there. It's only when you can dig beneath the surface and get to work on getting a healthy root system in place that the fruit begins to grow healthy. But once the root system becomes healthy, the fruit that grows off the tree can't help but become healthier. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus personally, please find someone around you that you can talk to after service and ask them how you can have a personal relationship with him today. Because without that, you're working on the exterior of the tree and ignoring the roots. If you're here today and you do know Jesus, but you're like, man, Eric, I have a lot of rotten apples growing on the tree of my life. That's God's invitation to you. Hey, you have some work to do on your relationship with me. And it's him inviting you to wake up and seek to know him more deeply and trust him more deeply. So Nathan delivers this message to David and David listens. And after hearing it, David simply responds, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, again, remember David sinned against a lot of people, but he recognizes underneath all of that, all the horrible things that he did to so many people, 
underneath it all is something wrong in his relationship with God. And the first step isn't saying, I promise to do better next time. It's simply turning to God and confessing what he has done. He does not make excuses. He does not blame it on his circumstances. He simply owns up to his actions and admits that he was wrong. And Nathan says, God has forgiven you. You will not die, but your actions still have consequences. This baby that you're about to have is going to die, which happens later in the chapter. And as we're going to see in coming weeks, David's children are going to follow in his footsteps of sexual and physical violence. And it's going to create a mess in his family and in his kingdom for the rest of his life. So that's the story of David and Bathsheba. We've seen several implications of how this story impacts our relationships today, but I want to close by pointing out a couple more. So let's look at our relationships. And the first thing I want us to see about our relationships today from this story is that sin is a path, not a point. Sin is a path, not a point. I think in our world, if you hear the word sin, most of the time people think of it as doing something wrong which is true to an extent. When we do things wrong, that like against what God has commanded, biblically that fits under the category of sin. But biblically, sin is not just actions that we do that are wrong. It's a heart attitude towards God that is wrong. It's a heart attitude towards God that says, God, I would actually do a better job making the rules than you would. Stop telling me what to do. Leave me alone. Let me call the shots. The only reason we ever do actions that disobey God's commands or what we would call sinful actions is because we first have a sinful heart attitude. And why is that important? Well, because if sin is first and foremost an action that we do, then it can be a point. We can do it once and then we can stop and it's no big deal. It doesn't need to go anywhere beyond that. It's a one-time thing. It's done. It's safe. We can control it. But the reality is that's not how sin works because sinful actions are always an overflow of sinful hearts that want us to be in charge rather than having God be in charge. We think that the way that God has set the world to work actually isn't the way that makes it work best in this situation, but I know better, so I'm gonna do things my way. And that sets us on our trajectory, which means that because sin is an overflow of our hearts, it never stays where it starts. It always grows. It's kind of like a baby tiger. Have any of you ever seen a baby tiger? They're really cute. They're really cuddly. They look nice. You think, oh, it'd be fun to bring this guy home. But that's a bad idea. Because if you bring that guy home and you keep feeding it, it's going to grow and grow and grow And one day, it's not going to be a cute, cuddly baby tiger. It's going to be a full-grown adult tiger, and it's going to eat you. That's how sin works. It starts off looking cute and cuddly and like we can control it, and then it grows and grows until it eats you. Unless you nip it in the bud before it can reach that point. I mean, David, in today's passage, is a case in point of how this works. His sin starts out seemingly small. He's just not doing his responsibility as king properly. He's being lazy rather than working to run the nation like he's supposed to. That leads him to be on the roof when he should be working. And then he ends up stealing his neighbor's wife because of that. And then that leads to murder and lots of collateral deaths as well. Sin always keeps on growing if it's given a chance. And it's important for us to understand that sin is a path because it's a path that leads to death whether that's physical death, whether that's relational death, spiritual death, all types of different deaths are the result of that path of sin. That's why God is deadly serious about sin in the Bible, because sin is deadly. God is deadly serious about sin because sin is deadly. It's not just true for David, it's true for you and me as well. Sin is a path, not a point, and it's a path that leads to death. So if we want strong and healthy relationships in our lives, we need to be actively fighting against the sin inside us every single day. And the primary way we do that is by maintaining a strong and healthy relationship with God. The second thing I want us to see here about our relationships today is the power of friendship. David 
I think we would all agree, he makes some horrible, horrible mistakes in this scene. He does some things that are awful. Actually, the things that he does in this one scene alone are far worse than anything the previous king, Saul, did in his entire life. I think it's fair to say. And yet God rejects Saul as king and he establishes David's line to rule the nation forever. Actually, several generations after David dies, God says that David is an example to follow. Did you know that? This is one of the most shocking verses in the Bible to me. First Kings chapter 15, verse five. It says, David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Like that's pretty incredible. Like in our world, if a politician abused their power in the way that David did right now, they would be canceled, they would be arrested, and that one action would define their legacy forever. Anything good that they had ever done would be forgotten under the shadow of this one series of events. But when God looks back at David's life, he sees this horrible, horrible scene as a small footnote in an otherwise amazing life. Is that incredible to you or not? Like that's just shocking to me. And so what makes this difference between David who does these horrible, shocking things and Saul, why is David able to bounce back from such a huge failure so that it's just a, a small footnote to an otherwise outstanding life while Saul with seemingly smaller mistakes, they end up piling up and piling up and eventually they come to define him. And a big part of the answer is friends. David had friends like Nathan who were willing to confront him and have hard conversations with him when he did these horrible things. And part of the reason he had these friends is that when they came to him and when they said these hard things, he listened. If you want to live a life that honors God, you need solid friends who have permission to have really hard conversations with you when you're making bad choices. And getting those friends, it requires investing time in building friendships. That level of trust takes lots of time. So I wanna ask you, do you have close friends in your life who have permission to have those types of tough conversations with you? If not, is there anyone that you can start being more intentional about spending time with so you can build towards that type of friendship with them? The third thing I want us to see from today's passage about our relationships today is that there is always hope. David messed up big time. Maybe you're here today and you're like, Eric, I have blown it too. I'm too far gone. I've done too much bad stuff for God to love me or forgive me. And if that's you, I want you to know God did not include this story in the Bible because he wants to shame you and drag you down. He includes the story in the Bible for a few, few reasons. One, to remind us that no one, no matter how great or godly they are, ever escapes the pull of sin in this lifetime. If someone as godly as David, the man after God's own heart, could dive straight into adultery and murder, there's no one who ever really makes it and is past the point of being capable of sin, even horrible sin in this lifetime. So if you're a mess, you're in good company. The second reason this story is included in the Bible is to remind us that true life is not found in hiding what you've done, it's found in confession. David thought that covering up what he had done was the path to life, but it wasn't. Confessing what he had done, getting it out into the open was the true path to life and forgiveness. The third reason this story is here is to remind us that forgiveness is available. No matter what you've done, no matter how evil it may be, God is ready to forgive if you are ready to confess. I could be wrong, but my guess is that for pretty much everyone in this room, whatever horrible things you've done in life is child's play compared to what David did here, right? But God forgives him and God can forgive you too. And all David had to do to get that forgiveness is come to God and confess his sin and trust in God to forgive him. He recognizes that he was wrong. He trusts in God as his only hope. And then the fourth reason that we have this passage here is to point us towards the greater king. 
You know, the Old Testament at this point, it's been telling a story of how Israel needs a king to be the nation that God wants them to be. Saul, their first king, he only made things worse. But then David comes. He's a man after God's own heart. He's bringing hope to the nation. And now he's failed too. If the man after God's own heart can fail so epically, where can we find hope? Well, it can't be in any merely human king. We need something greater. We actually need God himself to be our king. And as we continue in the story of the Bible, we see that happen in Jesus. Jesus, God in human flesh. We're told in Isaiah 53 that unlike Bathsheba, he had no form or beauty that we would be drawn to him. Unlike David, he doesn't use his power to abuse others and get his way. Instead, he lays down his life. He dies even though he doesn't deserve it so that we can be set free from the penalty of our sin. And even though physically he may not have had that beauty, there's a beauty to his humility. There's a beauty to his sacrifice. And the more we get to know him and let ourselves be drawn into that story and drawn by that beauty, the more we're gonna be set free from the pull of the things of this world that try and draw us away from God and put us on a path towards death. And as we are drawn into the beauty of Jesus and reshaped and have the roots of our lives healed by that relationship with God, that's gonna allow us to love others and have proper relationships with them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story, even though it's a hard one, it's a difficult one, God, we thank you that actually it is still a story of hope, a story of you taking a broken mess and forgiving and restoring and bringing a second chance. God, I pray for anyone here who's at a point today where they feel like they've messed up, where they're afraid to come out and see open And so they're staying in these patterns of brokenness that are just continuing to bring pain in their relationships. I pray that you give them the courage today to confess what they have done and to get back on that path towards healing and life. I pray that you would use this story to strengthen our relationships with one another and to teach us to love one another and treat one another in ways that honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.